Acts chapter 20. And uh, we've been working our way through the book of Acts on Sunday morning. And what I love about this book is that the book of Acts is the history book of the New Testament. It tells us what took place from the time that Jesus goes back to heaven and all the main events for about the next 35 years. And so I like to begin each week with a little bit of a timeline. So there on the top of your outline, once again, Acts chapters 1 and 2 take place in the year 30 AD, and that's the, the time most, most commonly held. When that takes place, that's where Jesus goes back to heaven, Holy Spirit is given, the church is birthed, and that's Acts chapters 1 and 2. Uh, but time has traveled, or time has gone by, and uh, we've been following the ministry of Paul the Apostle, and he comes to the city of Ephesus. And uh, he spends about three years in Ephesus, and you want to just write down from 54 to 56 A.D., and uh, let me just put a map up real quick on, on uh, how this all works out. I know you've seen it before, but if you go all the way to the right-hand side of the screen, you go down to the bottom, you have the city of Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem is in the southern part of Israel. And, uh, but if you go about 300 miles north, you come to the city of Antioch, which is in modern-day Turkey. And uh, this is a uh, predominantly, almost completely Gentile church. That is, they don't have a Bible background. But that would be Paul's home church. And so they send Paul out on a missionary journey, and he goes to the city of Ephesus. And uh, Ephesus, back then they called it Asia, now they would call it modern-day Turkey. Now the reason that's so important is that Paul goes there and he spends three years, and these people have no Bible background whatsoever. They don't know about the Old Testament, so everything that they're going to learn about Jesus and about walking with him is going to come from Paul the Apostle. And so we're going to talk about that today as we go. So Paul leaves there. After spending three years, he continues on his missionary journey, and about two years later, he comes back not to Ephesus, but to the next town over, and uh, it shows up about 58 AD, and so you want to write that down. When he uh, arrives at this city called Miletus, which is about 30 miles away from Ephesus, he calls for the church leadership. And we talked about that last week, last week, how the church leadership shows up and uh, Paul begins to share with them some things, some final things. And we started looking at that last week. Now, the reason that this is so important, what takes place and why we're going a little bit slower is that first of all, this is the only place in the book of Acts where Paul gives a talk that we have recorded to a group of believers. Every other place in the book of Acts, Paul is speaking to non-believers who need to become believers. He's defending the faith, but this is the only place where Paul gives a teaching to a group of believers. So that's going to be very important. Also, we're going to find that this section is uh, considered the most theologically dense passage in, in the book of Acts. There's so much here, we're not going to be able to cover everything. And the big question every week as we go through this little section is what do you leave in and what do you leave out? And so I'm going to try to highlight the things that are most important, but there's a lot more. There's a lot more that we could talk about. As we go through this last week, this week, and next week, we're going to talk about some things that we're going to see from Paul the Apostle that may challenge our deeply held assumptions about what it means to be a follower of God, what his heart is towards us, what it means to be a Christian. And so I, I'm, I'm going to ask you to keep an open mind as I did last week and then this week and then, then next week as we, look at, as we look at some things. Now, um, if you're like me, I grew up in the church 
And uh, you tell me if this was your church experience, we would be in church. And, and I just thought that we were right because after all, it was us. And God would never let us be wrong. And we looked at other churches and they were weird and wacky, but, but we were right. And, uh, but they, they were you know, not so right. And after all, our church leaders told us that we were right and they seemed pretty godly. And, uh, and so we, we believed that. And uh, did you grow up thinking that, that way for the most part? Did you go to church as a kid? What, what, what we, and, and so we, we tend to think that, that we were right because after all it was us and, and God wouldn't let us be wrong. Well, as we go through this and we see what God actually says, we might have to rethink some of our assumptions uh, about some of our traditions. And so we'll, we'll get into that today as we go. But I also want you to keep in mind that as Paul gives this, this talk to these leaders of this church, these are the main points of a much larger conversation. So he doesn't show up, uh, they don't show up for him to give 20 verses, but this is a longer conversation. Uh, Luke just writes down about 20 verses for us. So last week as we got into this, we talked about as Paul calls the church leadership and we, looked, we started in verse 17, but I, I want you to do some of verse 20 again. Paul reminds the leadership there. He says, for I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house. Now remember these people there in Ephesus, they come from a totally pagan background. They have no understanding of the Old Testament. They don't even know that there is a Bible until Paul shows up. So Paul spends a lot of time telling them, this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Here's how this works out. Here's God's heart for you. So we talked about that. He focused in on the things that were profitable for them. Now, verse 22, as we pick it up where we left off last week, Paul continues and he says, now behold, bound by the spirit, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city saying that bonds and afflictions await for me. We're going to come back to that in the coming weeks when we talk about what's going to take place. But at this point, the Holy Spirit has just revealed to Paul that there's going to be some difficult times ahead. He's not sure what that means, but uh, we'll see that as we go, and we'll come back to that. I put verse 24 on your outline, and uh, as we continue to unpack this, verse 24, he continues, as a difficulty awaits me, but I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus." to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Um, there, there's a couple of words here that are very important. We looked at one of them last week. But uh, the word there for gospel, and I put it there on your outline, eugelion, I, hopefully I'm pronouncing that right, just means good news. And I put that there on your outline. He talks about the gospel of the grace of God. And so last week when we talked about that verse, you know, we just said that the, the word gospel just means good news. Whatever this gospel is that Paul wanted to share with people, he believed in, in, that, it was, in, that it was good news. And it was such good news that he wanted people to hear it even or regardless of what whatever happened to him. And as we, we got into that last week, one of the things that I said was that if you have received a gospel uh, that does not excite you and makes you want to share with everyone that you know, everyone that you know, you, you might find that the gospel that you have embraced might not be the gospel that Paul taught or, or that the Bible actually teaches. Um, because whatever this gospel was, it caused Paul, regardless of whatever happened to him, he wanted people to hear it. 
And so we, we talked about that last week. But, but here we see, and please write this down as a starting point, the gospel is supposed to be good news. It's supposed to be good news. And, and I shared last week that growing up in church, we would say outwardly, oh, the gospel, it's such good news. I mean, you know, we wanted people to go to heaven and we certainly wanted to go there. But when the gospel was presented and what it meant and how God lived this out in the lives of his people, I came to the conclusion that this gospel was more of a burden than a blessing. And, and it, was, it was difficult. It was, it was hard. You know, it, was just, it, wasn't a, it wasn't something that I got excited about. And, and as I said, it was more of a, a burden than a blessing. And I came to understand, not overnight, but through a, a process that the gospel that I had embraced wasn't actually the gospel that Paul embraced or that Paul taught. And so I, I want to talk about that today. So I, I also noticed, and I, and I put this there in that little verse, it's called the gospel of grace, the gospel of grace. And uh, that word grace is very interesting um, there on, on your outline. The word there is charis. Now, uh, we, we, I don't know, we didn't do that last week, but the word is charis. And uh, I, I want to just highlight two things there just for our purpose today. But you notice it says from NT5463. Now just tuck that away from NT5463, which means that this word actually comes from another word in the New Testament, another Greek word. So we'll come back to that. And when that word charis is translated into English, uh, you can actually translate that word and you can see there's the definition as joy, liberality, pleasure. Um, so the idea there is that you could actually translate that when he says the gospel of the grace of God, you could translate that as the gospel of the joy of God. And uh, that would be valid to do that. Now, we're gonna, uh, when we get down to verse 32, we're going to see something else. And I put verse 32 there on your outline. He says, and now I commend you, Paul says, to God and to the word of his grace. And again, that word grace there is charis. And he says, which is able to, and I've underlined on my outline, to build you up, build you up, and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So here it's the word of his grace. And uh, we see that that word charis can also be translated as joy. So you could say the word of his grace joy. And uh, that's certainly important for our study today. So you have this, the word of his grace, the word of his joy. Do you remember when uh, Jesus was speaking to his disciples and he tells them in John 15, I put this there on your outline, he says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy, and it's that word kara in the language, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. So whatever he was doing, he wanted his followers to have joy and that's, that's why he spoke that to them. But that word there, kara, uh, and, and charis, it's very interesting there on your outline, that word joy, kara, and you notice it comes from NT5463. Now, the reason I, I say that is because it comes from the same root as the other word, charis. So there on your outline, that word can be translated as joy, joyfulness, uh, joyous. You know, it's just, it refers to joy is, is the idea. 
in English, if I were to say the word run, running, or ran, it would all be the same root, but it would be different tenses of the same thing. We'd be describing the same thing. Does that make sense? And so this word joy here uh, is also the word for grace. It's the same. You can translate grace as joy. And he says the word of his grace or the word of his joy, which is to build you up. So the, the point I want to make here, and please write this down, the word of his grace builds us up and brings joy. It brings joy. And it was such good news. It, 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 it was such good news that Paul wanted everyone to know. So my question before we go any further is, is that if we were to ask ourselves, other than heaven, you know, heaven brings me a lot of joy. I've heard about the alternative. I want to go to heaven. But other than that, has the gospel that you have received, has it manifested in your life as joy? Is it something that you're excited about? Is it something that gives you joy? And so keep that in mind as we go. Well, verse 25, we're going to pick it up there in your Bibles. Paul's continuing on his, his discussion. He says, now, behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom of God, I will no longer, you will no longer see my face. And this is going to be the last time that Paul sees them. And so this is the last time Paul's going to see them. So if this is the last thing that he's going to get to say, it's going to be very important. He's not going to waste any words. So verse 26 now remember, he spent three years among them and, uh, and taught them everything that he could. He says, therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. Now, we're Westerners 2,000 years later. We might, uh, we'll come back to that. Um, for, or because, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. I, I like the King James Version of verse 27. I put it on your outline. I've not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. So I gave it all to you. I didn't hold anything back. I shared everything. Paul says, I'm guilty from the blood of all men. Now this is, would be foreign to us, but Paul's actually quoting from the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel was given a message to go and share with the people. And there on your outline, I put that. And it says, God is speaking. And it says, when I, and that's God, say to the wicked, you will surely die. And, and you do not warn them or speak out to warn the wicked from his wicked way that he may live that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require on your hand or at your hand. Yet if you've warned the wicked and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered yourself. So when Paul says, I'm free from the blood of all men, the idea is I, I warned you, I told you everything that you needed to know. So just very quickly, the leader's responsibility is to teach the whole council or tell the whole council of God. Well, verse 28, verse 28. Again, I put this verse on your outline. And uh, Paul says, so, so here's what you need to do. Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And uh, I like the word feed. Uh, I think it brings that out from the American Standard Version. Very quickly in that verse, one of the things that you want to be aware of, where I have the word poimeno, does everybody see that? And then he says, the church of God, everybody see that? The church of God, which he, God, hath purchased with his own blood. Does everybody see that? Church of God, which he, God, has purchased with his own blood. Just one more time, the Bible tells us that Jesus is God, is the idea. So you just don't want to miss that. 
So he says you want to feed the flock of God and you want to feed the flock of God the word of God. And um, here, here's why, and this is what we want to talk about today. Verse 29, he says, I know, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own, your own selves, men will arise speaking, my translation says perverse, uh, some of your Bibles say distorted, and, and that's a better better translation. Perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. So Paul here says, I know. I know this is going to happen. This is like prophecy. This, this is just going to happen. And uh, there on your outline, again, I put that verse, even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth of the word and draw away disciples after them. They will come inside the church and uh, they will distort. One of the things that you find is that um, persecution always comes from the outside. Uh, these wolves that he talks about are going to come from the, the inside. So Paul says, I know it's going to happen. They're going to come inside the church and they're going to distort the things that I've taught you. And I want to suggest that many of us come from church backgrounds where we have received things that are a distortion, but because we've heard them so many times, they're so deeply ingrained in us that when we find out what the Bible actually says, there's a part of us that says, that, that can't be right. That can't be right because it goes so against the grain of everything we've ever been taught. Now, interesting also concerning these wolves, as Paul calls them, Jesus would say it like this. He says, beware of the false prophets. Um, they claim to represent God, but they're false. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Inwardly, they're ravenous wolves. These wolves come in dressed like sheep. On the outside, they look very spiritual. They look very pious. They look very godly. You know, wolves don't show up looking like wolves because nobody would, would ever follow them. So they show up with a very spiritual and, and you know, just, you know, they've got to be true. I mean, after all, you know, they seem so godly. And uh, so we're going to find that uh, these wolves have come in and they distort the truth. Uh, very quickly, just write down that wolves come from inside the church. Again, persecution always comes from the outside. Uh, wolves come from the inside. So based upon what we've read today, um, Paul talks about this gospel and it's so good. Uh, and, he, and, and it brings joy and it should make you excited about, about it. Um, it's so good, but Paul says, but there will come those who come into the church and they will distort and they will follow, people will follow them. So, so here's what I'm gonna suggest and, and you wanna write this down. Based upon that passage, wolves take the good news and they turn it into bad news. They take the good news and they turn it into bad news as they distort. So if whatever gospel you have followed does not bring you joy, if it doesn't excite you, it could very well be that you have not followed the gospel that was so good uh, and that Paul didn't even care what happened to him. He just wanted you to hear it. Uh, you might have embraced a gospel or a teaching that didn't come from the Bible or from Paul, 
but actually from some wolves that came in who looked very spiritual, looked, sounded very godly, but they distorted the truth and they've removed the joy of being a follower of Jesus. And so I want to talk about that today. Are you interested? So in, and again, I had to leave so much out and I had to take some stuff out. In, in the, the New Testament, Paul is writing to those, we would call them the Hebrew believers. And he's talking about what Jesus did for us. And there on your outline in Hebrews 8, he says he, speaking of Jesus, is the mediator of a better covenant, a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. And I've underlined better covenant, better promises. So if you're new to the Bible, you have the Old Testament. That's also referred to as the law, the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. And uh, it was in that that God gave some promises to those who would follow him. And so then you have the New Testament or New Covenant, we would say, the New Testament, New Covenant, and where Jesus gives a new covenant for us, but he says it's based upon better promises. Now, it's also important to note, he doesn't say based upon a better promise, because if he said that, we say, oh, you're just referring to going to heaven. He says no better promises than the old covenant, the Old Testament. So the question is then, what were the promises in the old covenant that God made that in the new covenant we would have better promises? So I, I want to just point out two today, and we, we don't have time to go into any more. And I had to take a lot of verses out because we didn't have a lot of room on, on the outline. So uh, bear with me. So back in the old covenant, you recall that's in the first five books of the Bible, it's called the law. And God is speaking, Moses is leading the people, they've come out of Egypt, they're in the wilderness, and uh, God begins to make some promises to his people. And one of the things that we find there on your outline in the old covenant, God's speaking and he says there in your outline, verse 15, chapter 15, uh, 26 in Exodus, he says, I will put none of these diseases on you, none of the diseases on you, which I have put on the Egyptians, for I, the Lord, am your healer. I, the Lord, am your healer. So God says, not only will I not put disease on you, but I'm actually the Lord, your healer. So when Jesus comes to the earth, and um, you know, all Christians believe that Jesus is God, and so as God, he shows up and he always manifests as the Lord, our healer. Everywhere he goes, he's healing, he's healing, he's healing. Not one time does Jesus go heal, 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 and then somebody comes on and goes, you, I got something special for you. I'm going to put a disease on you. He, he never does that. He never does that. So, but there are some within church world who will say that under the new covenant, better promises that sometimes God will visit you with sickness and disease to teach you some things. And he'll take that, he'll use that in order to have you grow close to him, and it's there that you're going to experience his love. So what he promised to never do in the old covenant for his children who would follow him, now we have better promises, and some say that now under this new covenant, God would send disease on his people because there's something that he wants to teach them. Well, that would be a great distortion that would be a great distortion. So let me ask you this. Um, does it sound like good news 
and give you joy if you're presented a gospel and the gospel says something to the effect of when you come to Jesus, uh, the way that God's going to show you that he loves you is at some point in your experience, in your existence, you're going to have this horrible disease possibly that God is going to send upon you, but it's in that he's going to draw you close to him and uh, you're going to experience how much he loves you. Do you have joy in that? And does that sound like a better promise? Now, here, here's the part, don't, don't miss. I'm not saying that disease doesn't happen. Uh, we live in a fallen world, bad things happen to good people. But God says he would never do that. He's not doing that to us. Now, that's important because uh, it's very hard to believe in God for healing if you are at the same time believing he's the one that did this to you. He says, I would never do that. And that's in the old covenant. The new covenant is an even better promise. That makes sense? So, so you want to you want to keep that you want to keep that in mind. So that's the, that's the first thing, and there's much more I could say on that. But you've you've heard me say that before. Under the old covenant, the Old Testament, when God is um, leading His people and He's telling them what it means to be a follower of His and what He wants to do in their lives, one of the things that He says all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter eight, there in your outline, He says, "But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who is giving you the power." to make, what's that word? Wealth. That he may, and please underline this, confirm his covenant, which he swore to your fathers. So in the Old Testament, God told his people that he wanted to give them the power to make wealth, which is a a, a good thing. And not only that, he says, this is actually how you're going, I'm going to confirm my covenant with you. People are going to look at you and they're going to see how much I'm blessing you and that's, you're going to know that that's, that's the confirmation of my covenant. So and he goes on to say, you know, you have to trust me and partner with me in some things, but I want to give you the power. I want to, I want to see blessing in your life. There are some, now that we have the new covenant, which is based upon better promises, and they will say, if you truly want to walk with the Lord and you truly want to be spiritual, you're going to have to live a life of poverty. They'll say, if you want to be truly blessed by God, you, you have to not have material things. You have to be, you know, again, in poverty. Some of us come from a background where we were taught that if you truly want to serve the Lord in any significant way, it begins by you not just living in poverty, but you have to take a vow of poverty. How many of you come from a background where, where you've heard of that? Okay, some of us, absolutely, absolutely. So the question is, when Jesus, God, came to the earth, God in flesh, God as man, um, did he show himself as the God of poverty or did he reveal himself as the God of abundance? So I, I would suggest to you, everywhere that Jesus went, he was revealing himself as the God of abundance. So for instance, you know the first uh, miracle that Jesus performs, he turns water into wine. It's a great story. He goes to a wedding, they run out of wine, and uh, you know, his mom says, go, you know, do, do your thing. And he goes and tells them to get these water pots. And so they go and they take the water and, and it turns into wine. What we, we might miss is that when you look at what a water pot was in those days and six of them, he makes minimum, minimum 180 gallons of wine. 180 gallons of wine. Friends, that's a lot of wine. <laughs> Even for some of your parties, it's a lot of wine. <laughs> And, 
And, and so, and, and the, you know, the, the, the city was probably about three acres in size. There's probably no more than 50 or 60 people there, but he's the God of abundance. Do you remember the time when he feeds the 5,000 and they have nothing, they just have a very little bit and he gets involved and they partner with him and it begins to multiply and multiply and multiply. And as you read the story, it says that everybody ate and they were full, they were stuffed. You know, they go back for seconds, they go back for thirds, they can't have anymore. And at the end of it, they still have to pass around the buckets and pick it up because there's, there's so much left over. He's not the God of, of poverty. He's the God of abundance. That's his desire for his children. So let me ask you this. Do you get excited about uh, following a God who says, you know, you're always going to go without, you're always going to be in lack, you're only going to barely make it, you know, and that, that somehow that's going to be spiritual? Do you get excited about that? Well, I don't get excited about that, but I do get excited about following a God who says, I want you to be able to take care of your family. I want you to be able to pay your bills. I want you to be able to do the things that you need to do. I'm excited about that. I'm excited about following a God who says, I want to come alongside of you and help you do some great things. How many of you want your children to just struggle as they go through life relationally and financially and physically and every other way? Or, or would you say that as a parent, your desire is that your kids would do just a little bit better than you did? Do you wish that for your kids? Wouldn't you like to see them spare some of the, the struggle that we've been through in our lives? I know I would. I'd love to see them be spared from some of that. And so we as parents, we do everything that we can so that they can grow up and they can be blessed and they can do well and have relationships and finances. And you know, we want to see them excel in life. Do you know where you get that from? You get that because you are created in the image of God. Animals don't care if their offspring do well. You do because you're created in the image of God. God wants that for your children. Now, the reason that's so important is if you have this belief that God wants you to be poor, you're going to have a very hard time asking God, Lord, help me to do something here. Help me to get out of this mess if you believe he's the one who wants you to be poor. I uh, love this verse and by the way, I'm not saying that we don't go through times of financial difficulty, but you don't want to live your whole life there. Um, I love this verse from Psalm 35, 27. It says, let them say continually, the Lord, be the Lord be magnified who delights in the, what's that word? Prosperity of his servant. God loves to see his kids win. He loves to see them excel. He loves them to be able to, to, to go out and do life and do it effectively. When God says he delights in the prosperity of his servant. I love the word prosperity here. In the Hebrew, it's the word shalom. Have you ever heard of that word before, shalom? It's a great word. And what I love about that word is it can be translated so many different ways. Uh, for instance, it can be uh, translated as safe, well, happy, friendly, welfare, health, prosperity, peace. Are those the things you want for your kids? And you get that because you're created in the image of God. He wants that for his children. Uh, I, I want to see my kids be safe. I want to see them do well. I want to see them be happy, friendly. I, I want to see them be in health and prosper and have peace in their life. God loves it when his people prosper. We're going to actually talk about that more next week. It's very hard to get excited when you believe that God's the one who wants to keep you down and not able to function and not able to excel, but he's the one who's holding you back. 
or that you believe that God's will for you is that you live in poverty. Now we're going to talk about what abundance is next week, so you want to come back for part two. But, uh, but God wants to see you win just like you want to see your kids win. And we're going to pick it up there next week. Did you find that at least interesting today? I want to encourage you to make sure that as you think about who God is, if the gospel that you have received does not bring joy in your life, you're not excited about that. It could very well be that you have embraced a teaching or a gospel that really didn't come from the Bible or Paul, uh, but it came from someone maybe who looked very spiritual, but they took what God intended as good news and they turned it into bad news. So think that through. We'll pick that up there next week. Let's pray. Father, as we wrap this up today, pray that, that uh, we would come to understand you for who you are and what you actually say, and maybe not the things that we've been told by some people who appeared very spiritual, godly, and pious, but it just doesn't line up with what you say. And we thank you, God, that you gave promises in the old covenant, the old testament. And then, Lord, you tell us that you've even given better promises to us in this new covenant. So, Lord, help us to know you for who you are. Help us to represent you well in this time and place where we live. I pray, God, that you keep each and every one of us till we meet again. It's in Jesus' name that we pray and all God's people said, amen. amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you next time.